to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. As we talk about marriage, God's portrait of the gospel, and his purpose and design for marriage. This is Super Bowl Sunday. Over 100 million people are going to watch the game tonight. And there's two ads on there you can be praying about. Two ads uh, by the organization called He Gets Us. They'll be talking about Jesus. Each 30-second ad is $7 million a piece. Can you imagine that? We're grateful for Hobby Lobby and others that put up the money to put those two uh, commercials that will be going on during the Super Bowl at some point. So pray for the message that goes out to those 100 million people tonight. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. We'll get right to our scriptures. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, if you would. Verses 18 through 25 in Genesis 2. It says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground that the Lord God, the, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They got at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer as we commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for allowing us to worship you freely here with um, music, with offerings. And now as we open your word, we pray that it will not return void as promised in Isaiah 55, that you'll help it to go out, as it says in Hebrews 4, like a sword that's sharper than any two-edged sword. It would go right to our hearts today, that you would challenge us, convict us, encourage us, bless us, do your work through your Holy Spirit as we share this message from the word today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God created three institutions, okay? Marriage slash family is one. We see that here in Genesis chapter 2. He also created the church, and he also created the government, okay? And so as we think about that for the next three Sundays, we're going to look at the, the institution of marriage. And then on March the 5th, we'll look at uh, children and parenting. This, after all, is supposedly the month of love since Tuesday is Valentine's Day. And so I want you to just take a moment, and for especially the men here today, here's a reminder to don't be like Jerry. Watch the screens. Nice and loud, Joy. So Valentine's Day is coming up. Uh, what are you getting your wife? Nothing. I don't think it works that way. Nothing? Nothing. 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 Diabolical. Yep, this year for Valentine's Day, I'm the present. Oh, can I please be here when you tell her that? <laughs> Look, as if our wedding vows weren't enough. Through the years, I power wash the deck, 
I YouTubed how to build a walk-in closet. I even changed the toilet paper roll. Sometimes without even being asked. I took her to Graceland twice. But Graceland isn't a two-trip kind of place. And do you know where she has her weekly women's Bible study every Monday night? Do I want to know? Right over there. In front of my 70-inch crystal clear true tone LED while I sit in the back room watching Monday night football on my kid's cracked iPad. You saint. So, this year, no presents, just presents. What'd you just say? I'm not getting her any presents. I'm giving her presents. So, let me get this straight. For Valentine's Day, you're not getting her any presents with a T. You're giving her your presents with a C. That's what I said. Presents, not presents. Diabolical. Hey, honey. Yeah? As you can imagine, Valentine's Day did not go well for Jerry this year. Don't be a Jerry. Make those you love feel special. There you go. There's your reminder. So as we think about love and we're talking about marriage today, this and the following sermons are reminder sermons. Sermons to check your relationship with your spouse, your family, and to make adjustments to continue to build up the relationships, whether you're a mom or a dad, whether you're a child in the family. And we're going to be giving you some ideas of resources to share with the culture around you, to intersect with them and impact about what the Bible says about marriage, to impact them and to share with them what is God's design. I never thought 38 years ago when I started ministry that we would have to really redefine from the Bible what marriage is all about, and we need to emphasize that in our culture. So I want to say right up front, contrary to our culture, that God gives us the rights as explained in the opening of the Constitution, and it's God, not the government, who sanctions marriage. That's one of the things we need to be careful because we're hearing a lot in our culture that it's government that sanctions the marriage. No, it's God who does. The Respect to Marriage Act passed Congress in a bipartisan way and was signed into law just a few months ago on December 13th, 2022, codifying the Obergefell decision in 2015 where the Supreme Court gave same-sex couples the right to marry anyone in the United States as federally mandated. So legislator wanted to, legislation wanted to stamp that and, and drive that home as well with the Supreme Court decision. According to Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a Christian legal entity that we support, he said the, marriage, the Respect for Marriage Act threatens religious freedom and the institution of marriage in multiple ways. It further embeds a false definition of marriage in the American legal fabric. Another problem, it jeopardizes the tax-exempt status of nonprofits that exercise their belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. It can make religious freedom and free speech cases harder to win. It could result in predatory litigation by activists against faith-based social service organizations that could mire Americans in court for years to vindicate their rights under the First Amendment. The truth is the Respect for Marriage Act does nothing to change the status of same-sex marriage or the benefits afforded to same-sex couples following the Obergefell decision. It does much more, however, to endanger religious liberty, according to the Alliance Defending Freedom. So today, we want to remind you and those who are tuning in of our stand on marriage here at Pleasant View Baptist Church based on the word of God that marriage is that holy covenant recognized by God and his church, which is reserved for a man and a woman 
only to be wedded and there to remain faithful in their commitment and intimate relationship until death do them part. If you believe that, say amen. amen. That's what the Bible teaches. And so despite what the world says and other Christians who try to justify same-sex marriage or any kind of marriage that is unbiblical, this is what the Word of God teaches, period, on this subject. And let's be very clear as we move on to talk about God's design for marriage. He designed it for a beautiful purpose and for maximum fulfillment of joy between a man and a woman. I do believe there are some who God calls to be celibate in this life. Marriage isn't for every person or every Christian. And I don't want to shortchange any of you who, you know, have gone through a divorce or you've lost a loved one through death. And that maybe God has, has told you that this is the time to remain celibate. And we know 1 Corinthians 7 gives us some guidelines for that. As Paul talked about the importance of celibacy and the appeal to focus on God and his work with less distraction than married life and family can bring. So we want to acknowledge that. And so marriage is a blessed thing, and God has a plan and a purpose and is designed for marriage. So we're going to look at three purposes today for marriage this morning in God's design. And I invite you to take out your notes and fill in these blanks, three very important main things. I share these in premarital counseling when I go through that process. First of all, marriage is designed by God for a man and woman to mutually complete one another, to mutually complete one another. Marriage fulfills the need for companionship. We read in that passage in Genesis 2 how Adam was given all these animals and he named them all. And notice what it says, that God saw fit that he was still lonely, that he needed a helpmate. And so he created Adam and Eve. Men and women were created with the need for relationship, relationship with God and relationship with other human beings. I know that things have changed in how people meet and date and get married today with the internet and the way COVID have changed the way people socially interact, but there's still some stages that people go through that leads them to get married. It's a process, and sometimes the dating part of it can be heartbreaking, painful, as you may go out with people and then give them your heart and those relationships get broken. But God has a purpose for each of these stages to prepare a couple for marriage and for maturity in marriage. So one of the first stages we see is dating. Dating. Some also believe in courtship where you, you begin the relationship with the intent of hopefully marrying. Others in other countries have arranged marriages as well. But this beginning stage, this connection, brings the spirit, the friendship, the companionship where you grow together spiritually. That's what dating is. And we'll see a, another slide here in a minute that describes that a little bit more in detail. Engagement is soul. Common goals coming together. Common values. Sharing future plans and a deepening of the emotional attachment to grow together emotionally. And then marriage, where the physical part, the body, the sexual union, the consummation of the spirit and soul growing together in intimacy. So we see this graphic next, this next slide, dating. We see his spirit, engagement, the soul, and marriage, body, and sexual union. 
And I want to go to the next slide because it talks about the uh, importance. Oh, okay, I guess I don't have that slide in there. But this shows you what happens when the world um, does this all backward. See, our world is all about meeting someone, hooking up, one night stand, and emphasizing the sexual, and sometimes waking up not even knowing really much about the person in, that you've just been involved with intimately. And so the world does the opposite in many ways as to what God intended. So the world's view of how to approach this and redefine love is just the opposite of what God intended. So your husband and your wife should be your best friend. Your husband or your wife should be your best friend, and you should be honest and transparent with your spouse about everything. It's important that you share your social media and password information with your spouse. There shouldn't be secret accounts out there. I encourage, when I counsel a couple, to have one checking account, one savings account, with both names on it, so both knows exactly what's going on with the finances. Some share the same email address, and that shows even more honesty and accountability. But we see also that marriage provides a depth of wholeness to the husband and the wife. And we don't want to take time today, but we'll probably get into it in next week or week after Ephesians chapter 5. But one of the things you learn of being married is you learn not to be selfish. You learn how to live with someone else and share. You learn humility. You learn responsibility. You learn how to serve one another with mutual love and respect. A couple weeks ago, I heard somebody on the radio giving some marriage advice to a talk show host who was about to get married. And he said this, that before he and his wife got married decades ago, they decided that the husband would take care of all the big decisions and the wife would take care of the small decisions and reported that after decades of marriage, all the decisions were small decisions. <laughs> all of them. So you learn in marriage, conflict resolution and forgiveness. And you also hopefully go into marriage where divorce is not an option. You grow together more spiritually because of the relationship. See, the world has all their priorities out of order and their focus and their perspective is all wrong. The world makes us curious and makes us think that we are missing out on all the fun and happiness if we're monogamous in our intimate relationships. And I go back to say it's very important that you go into the relationship and, and divorce is an option. And if that's off the table, that helps in a lot in dealing with conflict resolution. And that, you know, you can always get help and counseling and resources. The vow is till death do us part. So we see in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We're supposed to, uh, and, and the dating relationship begin by looking to God together and looking at God's word and praying together in that relationship. And as you grow closer to God spiritually, you're growing closer together uh, uh, in your soul and your emotions as well. And Psalm 16.11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore, putting God at the center of the relationship. In Hebrews 10.35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. We need to ponder 
the superiority of God as our great reward over all that the world has to offer. If we don't, we will love the world like everyone else and live like everyone else. God's treasure that's lasting for all time is much better than the short-lived happiness the world seeks here and now. The world is never fulfilled, so they're on the, to the next person or to the next thing to get their rush of happiness. Finding our pleasure in God is better even than sexual intimacy. Jesus never had sexual relations, and he was the most full and complete human being that ever existed. Sex is a shadow, an image of a greater reality of a relationship and a pleasure that will make the most exquisite sex seem like a yawn. But don't get me wrong, God created sex for ultimate pleasure within the confines of marriage, but the way the world is becoming more and more focused on sensual things and sexualizing our children, they're missing out on the one God who can fill all our desires with joy and satisfaction by doing things in God's way, his design, and in his time. So here's our application. God designed marriage for the maximum fulfillment and benefit for the husband and wife and the death do you part relationship. That's what it's all about. It's a commitment. Yes, there are feelings involved. Yes, there's all these things that revolve around it. But at the end of the day, it's a commitment to love one another in this marriage relationship. So stay committed and build your relationship with your spouse if you are married. Second of all, another purpose and design God put together in Genesis 2, marriage is designed by God to multiply a godly legacy. This is his way of sending the gospel on to further generations to multiply a godly legacy. In Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Psalm 127, he talks about children, how important they are. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's a story a couple of years ago in Christianity Today, an article about how evangelical Christians are having less children. And they interviewed a couple, Lily Jones Howard and her husband. Uh, they grew up in a church in Southern California with a big burgeoning children's and youth ministry. The children had afternoon and evening Awana clubs and ran separate junior high and high school youth ministries. She compared that church to the church her and her husband and two children attend now. The median age of the members in the church she's attending now is about 65 or 70 years of age. The pastor said explicitly that children are the lifeblood of the church. And Lily Jones Howard said the congregation makes an effort to welcome young families like hers. In the near future, the article said, an increasing number of American evangelicals may find themselves with church experiences much like the Howard's family for one simple reason. Evangelical Christians with children are slowly becoming harder to find. Americans in general are having fewer children today than they did two generations ago. Spiking after World War II, the fertility rate declined to around two lifetime births per woman in the 80s and has hovered there ever since, according to the Pew Research Center. Evangelicals also weigh seemingly conflicting concerns from Scripture. 
Some see God's command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply as paramount, while others glean from the creation story a responsibility to steward creation, which might mean having fewer children. So children are taught to come to Christ and grow in him by developing godly character. And it's all in that place called home. There's no substitute for a mom and dad who are committed to Christ, who are committed to each other and committed to the spiritual growth of their family. The church is a complement, is a complement to the family's spiritual growth with dad being the head of the household and expected to lead in the spiritual growth of his wife and kids. The church is not to be considered a substitute for the spiritual growth of the kids. Let me repeat that. The church is not to replace the home to be the spiritual growth of the children. We are here to come alongside and support and give resources. But the dad is the spiritual leader of the home and to make disciple makers in the home. There's so many amazing resources out there. I wish I had as many of these when I, my kids were small. One of them is a, a book called God's Creation Family Devotions. God's Creation Family Devotions by a local pastor here named Rick Magoo. In fact, Sandy used to go to his church, right? And if you want to get that book, it's found at localchurchapologetics.org, localchurchapologetics.org. And uh, uh, Pastor Rick is on WDLM, and you hear these during the morning show. They're short little blips about creation and how it connects to God. And that book has the print, but also has a scan code. You can go and listen to it online. There's just tons of great resources to build spiritual growth into your kids. Children are taught how to find their purpose in life within a biblical worldview. This is so important. With all this gender identity, sexual orientation talk in our culture, we have to show our kids who they are in God, in Christ, that they have a purpose, that God has a plan for their life. We have to bring them to the word to see that. And remember, more things are caught than taught in your kids' lives. Let them catch you as moms and dads reading the Bible, praying, also praying together as a spouse, serving in the church. Let them see you have honesty in your relationships and your business dealings. Be intentional to answer the why questions that kids have. That is so key, so important in helping kids to have a faith of their own. Remember, there are no grandkids in God's family. Everyone has to come on their own to God and receive Christ as Savior. And we have to help them get to that place. So make sure your kids have their own faith and not that of their parents. And that can be a difficult thing to discern. That's why it's important that on Wednesday night, if your kids come to a WANA or youth group, to have a discussion afterward and ask them, what, what is it you learned tonight? What was talked about tonight in Awana and in youth group? Help them develop a reading plan in the Bible at their age. Pray at meals together and give kids turns in praying. One of the blessings I have is that three of my grandsons, they all go to Awana over there in Bourbon, Illinois, and they have puggles. We don't have that program, but that's for three-year-old, two, two and three-year-old kids. And it's exciting. We were over there recently, and uh, little Harrison, three years old, just spouts out, God is kind, God is this, all the things he's learning. My oldest grandson was given a Bible, and he showed me how far he's read in his Bible. 
Those are the things that we need to encourage with our kids and our grandkids. Read to your kids and grandkids bedtime stories of biographies of great Christian people from yesteryear. There's a lot of great um, age-appropriate children biographies that you can sit down and read as they're in bed before they fall asleep. Tell them about the heroes of the faith. Children need to be taught that they are fishers of men, fishers of men. It's important to instill in them at an early age a few things, the habit of going to church and why you go to church. Tithing, giving that first 10% to the church. I'll never forget when I became a Christian, 14 years of age, first job I had there was a paper, doing, you know, paper route, delivering papers. And I learned right after becoming a believer to give that $1 when I made $10 into the offering plate. And it's good when you teach kids at a young age. Daily reading God's word for themselves as they get to the place where they can do that and buy them an age-appropriate Bible. Sharing their faith with others. Kids are more honest than we are as adults. As we grow older, we tend to worry more about what people think, but kids can be very honest about sharing their faith. Developing them and understanding that evangelism is a lifestyle. And then children are taught to pass the faith and the gospel on to succeeding generations. They need to be taught to pass the faith along, the gospel, where they have received Christ, realizing they're a sinner, realizing they need to turn away from their sin, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and they overcame death through the resurrection. And by believing in him, they have abundant life here on earth and eternal life in heaven, guaranteed, having that confidence. When we as parents and grandparents model these things, kids realize that this is what they're supposed to be doing when they grow up and get married as well. Kids are so impressionable and teachable, and may we be intentional in growing godly families to affect generations to come with the gospel to our families as well. Every family and every father leaves a legacy with his children, no exceptions. The only question is what kind of legacy. A few years ago, a team of New York State sociologists attempted to calculate the influence of a father's life on his children and the subsequent generations. In this study, they researched two men who lived in the 18th century. One man's name was Max Jukes, and the other was Jonathan Edwards. The legacy that each of these men left their descendants stands as a study in contrast. They're as different as night as day. Max Jukes was an unbeliever. He was a man with no principles, his wife also lived and died, not a believer in Christ. And what kind of influence did he leave on his family? Among the 1,200 known descendants of Max Jukes, 440 lived lives of outright debauchery, excessive indulgence and sensual pleasures. 310 were paupers and vagrants. 190 of his descendants were public prostitutes. 130 were convicted criminals. 100 were alcoholics. 60 were habitual thieves. 55 victims of impurity and seven were murderers. Research shows that one of Juke's descendants made a significant, none of his descendants made any contribution to society. In fact, the state of New York estimates that it costs the state $1.2 million to take care of these people that were destructive in their nature. Not much of a legacy. But what about the family of Jonathan Edwards? He was regarded as one of the most brilliant Americans who ever American mind that America has ever produced. Edwards was a noted pastor and astute theologian. 
And this renowned scholar was the instrument God used to bring about the Great Awakening in colonial America. He served as the president of Princeton College. And Jonathan Edwards came from a godly heritage and married Sarah, a woman of great faith. Together, they sought to leave an entirely different legacy. Among the male descendants from Jonathan Edwards' family tree, 300 pastors and missionaries or theological professors, 120 college professors, 110 lawyers, 60 physicians, 60 authors of good books, 30 were court judges, 14 were presidents of universities, numerous giants in American industry, three congressmen, and one vice president of the United States. There's scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of Jonathan Edwards' descendants as its chief promoter. Such is the lasting influence of a godly man. That is the kind of legacy that we should be espousing to do for our children, grandchildren, and so on. So our application here is that God designed marriage to be the greenhouse that grows godly families. It's the greenhouse. The seeds are planted. Home is the place where life makes its decisions. Another reason God designed marriage that is very important is that marriage is designed by God to mirror God's image. To mirror God's image. Marriage was created with the purpose to glorify God as a couple. We are to be a picture of the relationship that a believer has with Christ in our commitment as husband and wife to one another. In Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. That is our purpose, to glorify God, to be his piece of artwork, individual, specific, unique, to the spheres of influence of the people that we come in contact with. In Ephesians 1.11 through 12, if you don't think you're of value to God, Memorize these verses. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And why is that? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You and I today, we are to the praise of his glory as we live our lives to glorify him. The things you can do as a couple to point people to Jesus are endless. Just pulling out of your driveway today and week after week to come to church speaks volumes to your neighbors. Welcoming new neighbors in the neighborhood by taking them cookies and introducing yourself to them. Welcoming new neighbors to the neighborhood and then sharing tools with your neighbors and inviting them for a meal or be an active member of your home association if you have one. Attending funerals of your neighbors. And the list is endless. Just how you conduct yourself and live out Christ and look for ways to pray for and minister to your neighbors is a big deal. Don't underestimate doing the simple acts of kindness. That marriage was created to reflect the intimacy of God with man. Marriage was created to reflect the intimacy of God with man. And that is to be one flesh, one flesh. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Take your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. Here's a passage that we don't often talk about. 
we just kind of skim over this. But it's God's driving a stake into this idea of one flesh, of a husband and wife. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he adds this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We've been asked in recent times to put together as elders a response, a policy for sexual orientation and gender identity. And we have done that this week with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom. And uh, part of that statement says this, we believe that any form of sexual immorality, including adultery, fornication, homosexual behavior, bisexual conduct, bestiality, incest, or use of pornography is sinful and offensive to God. And we'll be giving out the full statement. But we, are because of litigation possibilities and other reasons, we want to make clear where we stand on these very important issues that are being discussed in our culture. And Christians in the world have, Christians even and the world have degraded the beauty of sex inside of marriage. We've cheapened it. And we as Christ followers need to speak up about intimacy in the marriage relationship in a positive way. The advantages of staying faithful to your spouse are exponential, as studies have proven. Pornography, as you know, is a big business in our country, and so is sex trafficking in the United States. I was appalled this week as I read John Stone Street's article in the Rutherford Institute about how big sex trafficking is in the United States. First of all, pornography, most kids today are exposed to porn by age 13, with 84% of males and 57% of females ages 14 to 18 having already viewed pornography. Pornography damages your brain like cocaine does. It creates heartache in the marriage, and to me, in my opinion, it's equivalent to adultery. Pornography leads to the growing sex trafficking issues in our country. Consider this, every two minutes, every two minutes, think about this, a child is bought and sold for sex in the United States of America. Every two minutes. Hundreds of young girls and boys, some as young as nine years old, are being bought and sold for sex as many as 20 times per day. What does that kind of damage does that do to that child? Then we think of one flesh, we move on to one heart. One heart. A man, a woman needs that marriage relationship to stay strong and weather the storms and influences of this world that swirl all around us. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon said this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That's why the marriage relationship is so important that you're there for each other through the difficulties, through the trials, the tribulations, the failures. 
to build each other back up. That's why sharing and communicating with your spouse is so important. We live in a very lonely society and having a companion to share life with, to share a home with, is so important post-COVID. To be connected with one heart and going in the same direction is vital to a healthy and godly relationship. And then to have one vision, one vision. Amos 3 says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? That means as a husband and wife, having the same priorities in spending, having good discussions about where to spend vacation, having a plan for your kids and your grandkids, how to invest and spend time with them in an intentional way, making decisions as a couple on future plans together, being there through bad health and difficulties, agreeing and going in the same direction, having the art of compromise and flexibility in the marriage relationship is so valuable. But lastly, but very importantly, marriage is a portrait of the gospel and our becoming united with Christ. When you stand at an altar as husband and wife-to-be, you're standing before God and all the assembled witnesses as a testimony that you want to be committed to one another till death do you part. It's a picture of our being united in Christ at salvation. And so our marriage literally reflects the gospel of Christ to those around us. And I wish I had the time to extrapolate that and talk about that in, in much more detail. But Romans 6 gives us this. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might have newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, he died on the cross and we, you know, spiritually speaking, we died with him, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection like his. You and I, we are intimately connected to Christ through the Holy Spirit. So you and your spouse are both in Christ and you and your spouse are also in God's eyes one flesh. And so how we treat our spouse, it reflects the gospel of Christ. The intimacy and depth of love for one another is huge. We need to celebrate lengthy marriages that will encourage others to work on their marriage and grow deeper in love with their spouses as the years go by. The last church we were at was just under 300 people and my wife started something really neat at that church, that we had a plaque. And whenever somebody reached 50 years of marriage, we had a big celebration with a cake at the church after church, and we put their name on that plaque as a sign for younger people to seek and achieve that goal in their life. What you celebrate, people want to go after. We, you and I, we reflect the love we have for Christ by how we treat our spouses and intimacy and love of the Trinity for one another. We are a picture of that. Joy in our relationship, the joy we have in Christ. Faithfulness, working through difficult times, reconciling. All these things and more can cause people to ask for a reason for the hope that's in within us as we share what we're going through with others in our marriage relationship. In 1 Peter 2.12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when he returns. That's our goal, 
to live godly lives as husbands and wives before a world that has this thing of marriage all messed up. The application, God designed marriage to be an example of the gospel lived out for all to see. For all to see. Be an example, lived out. And the key thought here is that every Christ follower who is married must seek to glorify God in their relationship and reflect the gospel of Christ in how they behave to a watching world. Because believe me, people are watching your marriage relationship. They're watching how you parent your kids. They're hungry to understand and know why you stick it out, even when you go through difficult times. So I want to encourage you. Think about those questions to ponder this week. But I want to encourage you two things today, is to work on your marriage and view it from God's perspective. But second of all, tell people that you know that are not believers how God designed marriage and its purpose. It was put together to give us the maximum joy and the greatest potential to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the marriages in this church. Lord, in the last few months, I've talked to people who've watched their marriages disintegrate, evaporate in a moment because their spouse secretly met somebody online and boom, they're gone. They're out of the house. Some Christians, some not. I just pray, Lord, that you help us to guard our hearts, to protect our marriages, to seek to be more intimate with our spouses in our communication, in our affection and our love for one another as we even think about the emphasis on Valentine's Day on Tuesday. And help us, Lord, to be beacons of light, to reflect the glory of God through our relationship with our spouse, but also to explain to the world your design, your purpose, and your plan so they can understand how to have maximum joy and fulfillment in the marriage relationship. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.